I'm Kristen Seavey. This is Murder, She Told. This episode is an update to a case that we covered on November 8, 2022. The story of the double homicide of Steve and Wendy Reed in Concord, New Hampshire. I'm going to give you a quick recap, but if you want a refresher, I've linked the original episode in the show notes. This episode also won't go into as much detail about who Steve and Wendy were. It mostly focuses on the trial. So if you want to learn more about the incredible people Steve and Wendy Reed were, I highly suggest going back to listen to that first episode. For the past year, the suspect, Logan Clegg, has been awaiting trial. That trial has now concluded. Steve and Wendy Reed spent their whole career helping others in West Africa with the Peace Corps and USAID. They just returned to New Hampshire in 2019 at the ages of 64 and 63 to enjoy a well-earned retirement near Steve's family. Around this time, Logan Clegg was living in the Western United States in Utah and racking up some criminal charges. In July of 2020, Logan stole a 45 caliber gun from Al's Sporting Goods in a small town in Utah. In August of 2020, Logan was arrested for shoplifting in Walmart in Salt Lake City. And again in August of 2020, Logan was arrested on another burglary charge. In November of 2020, he was either found guilty or pled guilty to one misdemeanor and three felonies relating to these incidents. He was sentenced to 72 days in jail and 35 months of probation in Utah. At that point, he'd become a convicted felon. In June of 2021, Logan left the country for five months, breaking the terms of his probation and traveled to Portugal, Germany, and Iceland. In July, while he was traveling, he missed a scheduled meeting with his probation officer, and by the end of the month, he became a wanted man. An arrest warrant had been issued by Cache County, Utah. By November of 2021, Logan settled in Concord, New Hampshire, where he stayed off the radar, living in a tent in the woods near where the Reeds lived. He got a job at McDonald's that was about two miles away. His situation in the cold New Hampshire winter of 2021 was bleak. He was 25 years old. He was experiencing homelessness. He worked at a fast food restaurant, and he survived in the woods by keeping warm with a portable heater that used small disposable propane tanks he bought from Walmart. In February of 2022, Logan quit his job at McDonald's. He then traveled to Barrie, Vermont and purchased a Glock 9mm handgun and three boxes of ammo using a fake ID. He returned to Concord where he continued to stay, unemployed, throughout February, March, and part of April. It was Monday, April 18th, the day after Easter Sunday, and the Reeds went for a walk. They left their apartment on foot and went to the nearby Marsh Loop Trail for a little hike in the woods. At approximately 2.55 p.m., Steve and Wendy were gunned down in the woods with a 9mm handgun. There were no witnesses to the shooting. The killer dragged their bodies off the trail into the woods, out of eyesight. Steve and Wendy weren't missed immediately. It wasn't until Wednesday, two days later, that they were reported missing. Steve had missed a tennis game with his brother. His son Brian looked around their apartment and found things frozen in time. The cars were there. A window was open. He found his father's wallet. Conquer police started looking for the reeds, but it wasn't until Thursday night that they were discovered. The cool spring air had preserved their bodies, 
The area was thoroughly searched and their bodies were taken for autopsy to the medical examiner's office. Through a combination of witnesses, store surveillance footage, and financial records, Logan Clegg was identified as a suspect in September, five months after the shooting. We go into this interesting and intricate police work in the previous episode, so if you want to know more about how they found him, or you need a refresher, go listen to that episode again. Logan was arrested in Burlington, Vermont in October, just before he was scheduled to leave the country on an international flight. He was initially arrested on probation violation charges from Utah, but while he was making his initial court appearances for that, Conquer PD was quickly analyzing the Glock 9mm handgun that they'd confiscated from him at his arrest. They were able to determine that the spent cartridges that had been found at the scene of the shooting had come from his gun, and so they then charged him with the murders of the Reeds. Between October 2022 and October 2023, Logan's case made its way through the legal system, where he waited in jail for his day in court. And on Monday, October 2nd, 2023, his trial began. Two prosecutors, Josh Speicher and Danielle Sikowski, two defense attorneys, Carolyn Smith and Maya Dominguez, and one judge, John Kissinger, gathered at Merrimack County Superior Court in Concord to argue the fate of the defendant, Logan Clegg. It was held in the new building behind the historic courthouse on Main Street, in courtroom one. Logan's trial took 14 days. It was a long trial. It began with jury selection, where 16 jurors were picked, and a field visit to the site of the murders. But the bulk of the trial was consumed with witness testimony. The prosecution presented its case first through a series of witnesses that spanned nine days. The defense then called their witnesses over about two days. And finally, there were closing arguments. We spoke to Maureen Milliken, who is one of only a few journalists who were present for the entirety of the trial, gavel to gavel. I'm Maureen Milliken, and I worked for daily newspapers in Maine, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire for more than 30 years, nearly 40. My sister, Rebecca, who's an artist in Portland, Maine, and I have a podcast, Crime and Stuff. November will be our seventh anniversary of doing it. We asked her how the length of this trial compared to others that she's covered in the past. Five to ten days is usually, with ten days or two weeks being considered a long trial, usually it's how complicated the evidence is. This trial had a significant amount of evidence to get through, and There were more than 200 documents related to the trial, which is quite a bit. I filled four steno pads front and back of pages with notes. The entire trial was televised by Law & Crime Network. Unfortunately, the audio engineering for the courtroom was lackluster. Many witnesses were distorted because the mic gains were set too high, and none of the attorneys had lavalier mics, so they would often drift in and out of range of the mics in the room. We thought it might just be on the live stream, but it turns out it was just as bad in the room. It was so bad, and it wasn't, there was no distortion or anything, but they had these mics that were supposed to amplify sound in the courtroom, but these were the tiny little ones, so you had to have your mouth right in front of it to pick you up, and lots of times, even if people were in front of them, all three of the women attorneys were very short, 
The two male attorneys were very tall. The mics were never in the right place. It was very difficult to hear some of the witnesses. I mean, being there, we weren't getting distortion or feedback, but the acoustics in the room were awful. They'd ask an important question, and the witness would answer. You couldn't hear half of what the witness said because the acoustics were so bad and they weren't speaking into the microphone. You know, for just transparency's sake, everybody who's in the courtroom and everybody who's watching on streaming should be able to hear what people are saying, and nobody could. The room was set up with an aisle down the center with the prosecution on the left and the defendant on the right. When you sit in the visitor benches in the courtroom, you have to choose left or right. Most people sit on the left. The family sat on the left with a victim's advocate, just feet behind the prosecutors. It was often Steve and Wendy's son, Brian Reed, with his wife. It wasn't a crowded courtroom, so the difference on the sides were very obvious. It gives the sense that people are picking teams, and it makes you wonder what sort of subconscious influence it has on the jury. You will never see the cops in any trial sitting on the defense side of the room. Like being at a wedding, you know, maybe a casual observer who wanders in may not realize that, but everybody who's familiar with the case in the system knows which side they're going to sit on. Also on the left side was the jury box, the prosecution side. We asked her what some of the biggest surprises were during the trial. One of those surprises came before the trial really even began. Several motion hearings during the summer about DNA testing and DNA analysis, and it became clear through the voir dire of the jury pool and the state's opening statement that DNA wasn't going to be part of its case. In the voir dire, um, Assistant Attorney General Megan Hageman asked the 24 jurors if they could convict somebody if there was no DNA evidence, and I'm like, hmm. And then in her opening statement, she didn't mention DNA at all. And I'm like, wow, they did $100,000 worth of DNA testing, nearly $100,000, and sent this stuff to a lab in Florida to get more in-depth testing than could be done in New Hampshire, but it's not part of their case. And I know there isn't always DNA evidence, but they obviously thought there was going to be some. And so to me, that was a very interesting revelation. Instead of a daily recap of each day of the trial, what I'm going to do is focus on some of the key points that came up throughout the trial and organize them topically. The prosecution has a duty to disclose all evidence to the defense well in advance of a trial, in a process you've probably heard before called discovery. The discovery and the charging affidavit will create a fairly complete picture of the prosecution's theory of the case and the strategy they're likely to take at trial. The defense has no such similar duty. Other than the handful of pretrial hearings, the prosecution is mostly in the dark to the defense's strategy, and it is only at trial, in opening arguments, that it'll be revealed. Logan's attorney, Carolyn Smith, delivered the opening arguments, and they were interesting. The single most important issue was the spent cartridges that were found at the murder site. There was no question that those casings came from Logan's gun. That was scientifically proven. But the defense managed to cast quite a bit of doubt. I'll use the terms casings and spent cartridges interchangeably. Both terms describe the part of the round that's left behind in the gun after the projectile leaves the barrel. It looks like a tiny brass cup, and it's ejected from a gun like Logan had. A 9mm Glock semi-automatic handgun. 
These tiny pieces of metal fly out of the gun and can bounce around on the ground. The murder site was in the forest, the floor of which had plenty of leaves and vegetation that could easily conceal these small brass pieces. There were three points the defense raised to undermine the weight of this evidence. Point one was the timing of the discovery of the casings. The bodies of the reeds were discovered on April 21st, but it wasn't until May 20th, a month later, that the casings were found by investigators. Why weren't they found right away? Point two was who discovered them. They were found by the prosecutor from the DA's office as he was walking through the woods with a couple other team members on the investigation. It's awfully unusual for a lawyer to find this type of evidence, and not a crime scene tech or a cop. While on the witness stand, the prosecutor said that it was his first time to testify at a murder trial. And point three was the extent to which the area had been previously searched. Law enforcement had searched it several times. They had used scent dogs trained to detect spent cartridges. They used metal detectors. And despite these sophisticated efforts, they had not managed to find these two casings. But a lawyer, walking through the woods, happened to find two of them in plain view. We asked Maureen what she made of it. Obviously, if he could stand there and look down and see him, somebody would have seen him in the previous month. Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Ward used on the stand. They were in plain sight. I looked down and there they were. How likely is it that all the people searching around that tree in that tiny little bit of space wouldn't find them? I mean, that's crazy. But I think people have trouble accepting that because everybody wants the narrative on how they got there. If the spent cartridges had not been there the whole time, then they had to have been planted there. If they were planted, the person who planted them had to have had access to the evidence, which suggests the police. But the police had no casings to plant. The two casings discovered at the murder scene were the first casings found by the police. Our first thought was that the casings that were at the burnt tent site could have been relocated. But the ones found at the burnt tent site weren't discovered until three months later, in late August. At the time of the discovery of the two casings at the murder site, they didn't even know Logan Clegg's name. A witness that testified at trial, Alan Schwartz, said that he was walking Marsh Loop Trail on the day of the shooting, and he noticed four spent cartridges. He even picked up two of them, examined them, and then put them back where he found them. These casings were never recovered. The prosecutor suggested that the killer return to the crime scene and cleaned up, concealing the drag paths, collecting the spent cartridges, and covering the bodies, but missing the two brass casings later recovered by the police. But what if Alan Schwartz hadn't put them back down? What if he had put them in his pocket and later returned them to the crime scene? If that were the case, what would it say about Logan's guilt or otherwise? It would implicate him. If it was Alan that planted the casings, then those are the casings that he found at the scene of the crime, and those casings came from Logan's gun. The only scenario that doesn't point to Logan is if someone went into Logan's tent site, found casings there before the cops did, and then put them at the crime scene. 
The person that did that would have no idea who they were framing, though, which suggests it would be a random thing. A thing done just to mess with an investigation. A thing without reason. An extremely odd and unlikely thing. But it is also difficult to believe that the casings were there the whole time and were never discovered despite extensive searching. The story of the casings may never be fully unraveled. Maybe the answer is the simplest. That a stiff wind blew the leaves away that covered the errant casings, revealing them to the naked eye. Another point of contention was the bullets that killed the reeds. The bullets were confirmed to come from 9mm rounds, but ballistics could not link them to Logan's gun or to the spent cartridges. Under a microscope, the ballistics tech could see that the bullets had distinct markings that indicated that they were fired by a gun that had a barrel with, quote, polygonal rifling. This narrowed the type of gun to 15 brands, of which Glock was the most prominent. But there were likely millions of guns that could have fired those bullets and produced those types of markings. It defies common sense, but it is possible that the bullets found in the reeds were neither fired by the spent cartridges found at the murder site, nor by Logan's 9mm Glock handgun. One of the details revealed at trial was the nature of the wounds. Wendy was shot three times in the head. Stephen was shot in the hand, arm, and the shoulder-neck area. There was an estimation that they would have both died within minutes, but the areas of Stephen's wounds were less critical than Wendy's. This suggested that Wendy was shot first, and Stephen was caught by surprise. The defense likened the killings to an assassination, suggesting a certain cold, calculated professionalism and experience. But Stephen's rounds were not well-aimed. Another important issue that arose at the trial was DNA evidence. Somebody dragged Stephen and Wendy's bodies from the trail into the forest and covered them with leaves, sticks, and other debris. The drag path was quite long, some 50 feet or so, and it too was concealed with forest detritus. Cops thought that there might be some touch DNA left on the bodies or the clothing of the reeds. They figured that the assailant picked up the bodies under their arms, by the belt, or most likely by the feet and ankles. So they sent in certain pieces of clothing and swabs to the lab for testing. They tested Steve's right hiking boot, a sock, his gray jacket, his sweatshirt, his jeans, hat, and fingernail clippings. They tested Wendy's hiking boots, socks, pants, jacket, and shirt too, along with her fingernail clippings. Unfortunately, the testing was inconclusive. It didn't exclude Logan as a possible match, but it also didn't come anywhere close to uniquely identifying him either. A detail that was not released in the charging affidavit was how the bodies were discovered. At the time of the previous episode, I believed it was likely through the police search of the area, maybe with cadaver dogs. But that idea wasn't accurate. Police were able to get location data on Steve's phone from his Google account. It showed him leaving the apartment and going into the woods. And then it stopped. Police went to the place it stopped and found their bodies in a depression in the woods, 50 feet away from the main trail. Interestingly, Steve's phone was not recovered from his body. It had been taken. 
Forensic analysis showed that the phone continued to have cellular data transmissions for an hour or so after the killing, suggesting that the killer had taken it, moved it, and destroyed it. Steve's phone has never been found. Logan appeared especially gaunt and frail at the trial, and he was reported that during the visit to the murder scene, he walked with a limp. His shirts looked as though they were draped over a skeleton. It made me wonder if this was a strategy from the defense to make him look as meek as possible, virtually incapable of dragging two healthy adults like Steve and Wendy. One of the main points from the state was that Logan's actions after the killings were incriminating. He lied repeatedly to the police about a variety of things, what stores he shopped at, if he had ever lived in Concord, his name, his use of the alias Arthur Kelly, and whether he had a gun. There are so many lies, it was tough to keep track. The state said that these lies were to distance him from the crime, showing consciousness of his guilt. The defense said that these lies were all related to being wanted in Utah for his probation violation. They claimed that he lied because he didn't want to be taken back to Utah, and he was trying to conceal his identity. But that couldn't explain why he denied that he lived in Concord. What did that have to do with anything but the Reeds? Logan had a laptop. In the days following the death of the Reeds, Logan ran a process on his computer called Fresh Start, which was designed to erase his usage history. Forensic analysts weren't able to recover much from the laptop, so they turned to Google to see records of his search history. The only one that prosecution pointed out was one for Concord, New Hampshire News. The day that the bodies were discovered, Logan bought a bus ticket to Portland, Maine, so the state rightly pointed out that Logan fled the area after the crime was committed. But more than anything, the lead prosecutor, Spicer, reiterated to the jury that Logan had, quote, burnt his home by gathering up all of the empty propane tanks and other trash in his tent and setting it ablaze. Another strange topic that emerged during the trial and piqued my interest especially, was about baking soda. This was something that was not released before trial. Somebody had sprinkled baking soda on the bodies of Steve and Wendy Reed. It became obvious that their theory was somebody had dumped baking soda or sprinkled it, I'm not sure how much there was, in some kind of attempt to mask, they theorized, mask the odor of the bodies were they to begin to decompose. I mean, it doesn't take a chemical PhD to know that that's not going to work. But somebody did it, and then it turns out that the investigators, when they found um, Logan Clegg's tent site in Vermont, there was rubbish just strewn all over the place, like garbage bags had been ripped open and rubbish strewn all over, and I'm not sure what that was all about. But in it, they found part of the label of a box of baking soda, although it had been bought at Price Chopper, and there are no Price Choppers in Concord. You know, so I guess they were trying to say, Logan Clegg buys baking soda, and there was baking soda on the body. So so I think that, that was just one of their ways to tie him to the crime scene. The defense made the point in their cross-examination of the chemist that Unlike some substances, like, say, cola-flavored soda, you can buy a bunch of brands that have different things in them and stuff, but baking soda, no matter what brand you buy, is baking soda. 
So the baking soda that was sprinkled on the bodies, it really couldn't be identified as any specific brand or type of baking soda. To reiterate what Maureen said, the investigators didn't find any baking soda labels in Concord at Logan's burnt tent site. They found the label six months after the murders in Logan's trash at his new tent site in Burlington, Vermont. There are price choppers in New Hampshire, but there are many more in Vermont. The connection between the baking soda on the bodies and Logan Clegg is tenuous. But I will say this. Logan had few worldly possessions. The things that were important to him fit into a small black backpack that he traveled with, even took to work with him. Of the few things that he owned, at least in Vermont, baking soda was one of them. Perhaps, being unhoused, he might use baking soda to help with odor control or sprinkle it into his shoes. If it was Logan Clegg who sprinkled baking soda onto the bodies of Steve and Wendy Reed, I believe it was because he already had a habit of using it in his daily life, a habit that was borne out by the fact that there was evidence of him owning baking soda at the time of his apprehension. Other than the spent cartridges, the second most important issue at trial was the witness testimony of Nan Nutt. Nan was the woman that we previously gave the pseudonym Laura in our last episode. She was the woman who saw a man in the woods the day of the shooting and even heard the shots fired. We asked Maureen if the composite that was produced was from Nan. Yes, it is, and that's why it wasn't profile. But the defense successfully, in one of their motions, I think in June, got that taken out of evidence because Nan Nutt spent three hours with somebody and later told the police that I think she felt she wasn't being listened to in ways um, that they were kind of forcing her to remember things that she didn't remember, although none of the conversation was recorded. You didn't hear any of that at the trial, but I'm trying to remember the there was a whole bunch of docs in, I think, June or July motion documents. The defense kind of spelled it out in one of those. They wanted to get her entire testimony quashed. They didn't want her to be able to testify at all, but the judge overruled it. In Nan's testimony at trial, she described the shots as happening in two groups. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang. Steve and Wendy had overtaken her on the trail, and were likely a few minutes ahead of her by the time she and her two small dogs heard the shots. She continued on and encountered a man on the trail who initially made no eye contact with her. He was looking out into the forest. She looked back again, and he was looking at her, which made her feel uncomfortable. She described the man as in his late 20s or early 30s. Logan was 25. This is close, but slightly inaccurate. She described the man as white, which was a match. She said he was about 5'10", which is Logan's height. She said he was slender, which describes Logan. He had a clean-shaven face and short brown hair, both matches. She also said that his appearance gave her the impression that he was homeless, which was also true. She described him as having a backpack, black in color, just like Logan's. She said he had a brown plastic grocery bag that looked heavy and was weighed down with numerous items. Logan had just come from the grocery store, and he had a rotisserie chicken and a two-liter of Mountain Dew in his bag. 
There were two discrepancies that the defense brought a lot of attention to. One is that Nan described the cylindrical object in the grocery bag as looking like a jar of peanut butter. That is, having defined ridges that were pressing into the thin plastic grocery bag. So, although the two-liter Mountain Dew was cylindrical and about the same diameter as a large jar of peanut butter, the geometry was not an exact match. More importantly, she said that the man she saw was wearing khaki pants. Logan Clegg can be seen in surveillance images leaving Shaw's supermarket in black pants, and this gave me pause. The timing from when Logan left Shaw's to the time when Nan saw him on the trail was just 27 minutes, and much of that time would have been consumed by the considerable walk from the store to the trail. To think that he would have time to shoot the reeds, move their bodies, and change pants in the forest seems unlikely, if he even owned khaki pants. Eyewitness testimony is often unreliable. To believe that Logan is guilty is to believe that Nan's memory in this specific way was mistaken. To believe that Logan is not guilty is to believe that Nan saw someone else on that trail. The defense said repeatedly that the prosecution had, quote, no evidence that Logan killed the Reeds. By this, I suppose they meant that there was no evidence that was beyond dispute, like a video recording showing him pulling the trigger, or DNA evidence that showed him handling the bodies. But they were right to point out that the evidence was mostly circumstantial, and as a result, they motioned for the judge to end the trial and give a directed verdict of not guilty. The judge declined, saying that there was enough evidence of his guilt to let the jury decide the case. Either all of that circumstantial evidence is correct, or Logan Clegg is the unluckiest person in Concord. One thing that was not a part of the trial was Logan's prior incident killing a man with a knife on the streets of Spokane, Washington. I talked about this in the prior episode, but to quickly recap, Logan encountered a man named Corey Ward in May of 2018, just before midnight. There was some sort of physical altercation, and Corey ended up laying on the grass alongside the road, bleeding to death. A neighbor called 911 and reported that Corey was screaming he'd been stabbed. Police arrived and found that he had numerous cuts on his jaw, chest, left arm, and back. Corey didn't survive and was pronounced dead at the scene just after midnight. A search by police of Logan's and Corey's devices revealed no prior contact between the two men. It seemed almost random. A chance encounter that escalated to the highest level. Almost like the deaths of Steve and Wendy Reed, Logan told the police that Corey had yelled at him, called him names, and said that he was coming out to fight. Spokane police decided not to bring any charges against Logan there were no witnesses. This was not allowed to be presented at trial, likely because of the broad exclusion of a defendant's prior bad acts. We asked Maureen what of Logan's criminal background was part of the trial. The only information that could be brought up was that there was a warrant out of Utah for felony theft and burglary and that he had skipped out on probation and he was uh, being charged with being a felon 
in possession of a firearm as one of the nine charges against them. None of the details of that were allowed in, and none of the details, you know, that he had stolen guns, threatened the police, and other things. And certainly the thing in Spokane where he stabbed the guy to death, he was not convicted of or charged with anything that could not be brought up. On the afternoon of Thursday, October 19th, the judge gave the jury instructions on how to decide the case. Immediately after giving those instructions, he removed four of the 16 jurors who had sat for the entirety of the trial. He drew names at random. Those four jurors, unbeknownst to them or anyone, were alternates. Though they had sat and carefully paid attention to the entire trial for three weeks, their opinions wouldn't matter. It must be disappointing, but at the same time, a relief that a heavy burden of making such a major decision was no longer on your shoulders. For the remaining 12 jurors who would decide Logan's fate, they were sent home in order to return on Friday morning to begin deliberation. Their decision had to be unanimous. They spent all of Friday discussing the case and went home for the weekend. On Monday morning, they returned, and at 12.20 p.m. that afternoon, they sent the word to the judge that they had reached a verdict. Logan Clegg was guilty on all charges. In addition to the murder charges, he was also found guilty of multiple counts of falsifying physical evidence and being a felon in possession of a dangerous weapon. Stephen Wendy's son, Brian, spoke briefly, saying, A liar, a thief, and a murderer has been brought to justice today. The legacy of my parents' humanitarian work, their kindness, and their love for life will endure. Let today be a reminder of the value of human life and the strength of community. For myself, our families, and everyone who carried and shared our pain, may the justice that has been served aid in the work of our healing. It's now November 2023 at the time of this recording. Next month, on December 15th, Judge John Kissinger will impose a sentence for Logan Clegg. I'll bring you an update when that happens. And for two senseless murders, Logan, at just 27 years old, will probably be ordered to spend the rest of his life in prison. A detailed list of sources and photos from this episode and more can be found at MurderSheTold.com. If you want to support the show or buy me a coffee, there's a link in the show notes with options. You can also leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It always makes my day to see kind words about the show. You can also follow Murder She Told on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you to Byron Willis for his research and writing, and to Maureen Milliken for sharing her time and insight. If you have a case suggestion or a correction, you can email me at hello at murdershetold.com. I'm Kristen Seavey. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.